0: sometimes you might need more than a vacation. Coming up, we're exploring three very different pilgrim trails. The headwaters of the Mississippi River can be a lovely place to kayak, but record temperatures and low water might make you recalibrate.
1: The natural world is perhaps our best teacher. I call it the classroom, but I also call it the cathedral.
0: You could set aside a month to walk the medieval Camino de Santiago in Spain. It just might reset your mental state. It gives
2: you a feeling... Of great, well, self-confidence and you feel at ease with
0: just the essentials. Or go road tripping on the back roads of the desert southwest. It's where you can find many different kinds of sacred spaces.
3: You come to beautiful sanctuaries, most of them adobe, red, soft curves, these gorgeous buildings that invite you in.
0: Let's journey together in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves roadside crosses and shrines, petroglyphs and pueblos. There are many kinds of places woven into the landscapes of the American desert southwest, places with a distinctive, sacred vibe to them. In a bit, adventurous Christina Nielsen takes us to some of her favorite places in New Mexico. And German comedian Hoppe Kirkling gets serious about how six weeks of hiking the community Santiago in Spain helped him recover from overwork and misplaced priorities. It turned him from a couch potato into an unlikely pilgrim. Let's start the hour with Dave Ellingson. Mother Nature had a few surprises Dave hadn't counted on to make a Minnesota kayaking voyage memorable. It can be your own personal cathedral or maybe even a virtual sweat lodge. Dave Ellingson has found that a long kayaking trip in the wilderness is just the ticket to help you think about life and find inspiration along the way. He recently retraced part of his epic 2,500-mile kayaking adventure down the length of the Mississippi River by kayaking the river's headwaters in central Minnesota. And he's written a book to share his experience, and Dave joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what his latest paddle trip taught him about the impact of a changing climate and about life. Dave, thanks for
1: joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Good to be with you.
0: You know, your first Mississippi River paddle, it was like ten years ago, twenty five hundred miles, the entire length of the Mississippi, all about, as you wrote, adventure learning pilgrimage. Tell us about your latest Mississippi adventure, seventeen days in your kayaks with your friends Ellen and Jim.
1: Well, this was our favorite stretch of the river because it's pristine wilderness. The wildlife is magnificent, it's quiet. It's peaceful, and I was with two of my best friends I call my paddle brother and my paddle sister. It was a kind of a reunion with them and a return to my favorite place.
0: I'd like you just to let us know, because you're you're alone on the river. What's it like?
1: Well, you never know what's around the next bend, which is always an adventure. And, And in this particular case, we had planned a trip in early June because it's usually cooler, and we hoped for less mosquitoes. And we launched on June 1, and it was almost 100 degrees.
0: Do you regret traveling in June? I mean, you could have avoided that if you went uh, with a sweater. (laughs)
1: Put some skates on the
0: bottom of your kayak. Well,
1: what I've learned on my journeys, and what I think pilgrimage in life is all about, is you don't know... What's next? And you have to adapt and you have well, to that's adjust. that's part of it, isn't it? That's the spirit. It really is. And I know with your travels, I mean, you plan as well as you can, but then you have to portage. You have to right. adjust. And we, we found that we had to adjust to the heat and the fact that the river was going lower each day. We yeah. could see literally in the banks. I, I write in my book, it was like being in the Grand Canyon and watching the carving and sculpting of the Grand Canyon in real time. Each day, because it was that hot and the river was going down. It was like
0: the bathtub was being drained. It really was. Hey, by the way, this is the headwaters of the Mississippi now. Where exactly is that?
1: Well, if you drive about three or four hours north of Minneapolis, okay. you get to a lake or a series of lakes called Lake Itasca. Uh huh. And this lake flows over some rocks into, I don't call it the mighty Mississippi, I call it the mini-Mississippi or meager Mississippi, because the Mississippi is so narrow and so shallow that, in fact, this year the water was so low that we saw a couple of canoers and they were dragging Mm. their canoe. So we went further down to a lake and launched where there'd be enough water to actually paddle.
0: So it sounds like climate change, it's even part of the subtitle of your book, Paddle Pilgrim, Kayaking the Mississippi River Headwaters in a Time of Climate Change. So did you expect all of these um, challenges that really can be blamed on climate change?
1: No. I mean, so we... we learned about it. it was a we surprise. planned, and then our portage yeah. <laughs> was that we had to adjust that the river was... It was so hot. It was record temperatures. The water was going down, 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 And we were finding it more difficult to get into our campsites at night because they're up the bank. And you
0: actually aborted the end of your trip. At the
1: end of our trip, we didn't go all the way to Minneapolis because the water was so low.
0: What was the takeaway? Was it still a successful experience?
1: Oh, this was a, a hard learning for me. As we sweat and I paddled and it was 100 degrees, I remembered that some Native leaders here in the Northwest who I've worked with over the years had invited me years ago to a sweat. We went into the lodge that they had created, and we sweat for an hour, and a couple of the elders chanted and sang. And so I remembered that. And then I also thought, you know, in Norway and in Finland and Sweden, there are the saunas, and you sweat. Yeah. And so ultimately it turned from uh, awful heat and sweating to a purification experience and a kind of a blessing.
0: Talk about making lemonade out of lemons, huh? That's (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty good. I had no choice. Dave Ellingson is a retired Lutheran clergyman and professor and an active fitness enthusiast. In his Paddle Pilgrim book series, Dave writes about his kayaking adventures down the Mississippi and Hudson Rivers and along the fjords of Norway. His latest in the Mississippi Headwaters describes what the Father of Waters and Mother Earth are telling us about climate change. Dave's also authored a children's book about a bear and his problem-solving animal companions called Grizz and His Friends. We have web links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So, Dave, let's talk just uh, quickly about what, what was your takeaway about climate change? How did it impact you?
1: Well, I've always been, and I taught environmental ethics in college, I've always been an outdoor person. I'm not a climate change denier. I know it's real, and I know that humans are playing a huge role in climate change, and one of the primary symptoms is extremes of weather. And we paddled in extreme heat. But the river is a teacher. I listened to the river, and as we paddled along the river was teaching me lessons and one of the most important lessons, we we got to a little town called Palisade. And there was a group of people camped along the river called the Water Protectors. And it was a collection of Native American people. This is their holy water and holy land for the Ojibwe people. And I met a wonderful little uh, Mille Lacs Ojibwe girl named Naomi who was nine years old. And she became my guide. And she took me down to the river— and looked across the river where the pipeline is going to come, and she saw that the, the trees had all been cut down. And she looked at me, and she said, where will the animals live? Oh, And so I write about that oh. in my book, and I thought, you know, I think we so often think of short-term goals yeah. and immediate gratification and rewards. And I loved when I paddled the Erie Canal through uh, Iroquois territory and the Confederation of Iroquois, speak about the seven-generation rule. Yes. When we look at the environment, we shouldn't just think about me or even our children or our grandchildren, but we should think about what are the consequences of our actions for seven generations. We vote on
0: environmental issues based on its impact on our immediate economy, not the economy of our grandchildren. And when you're talking about our environment... I think indigenous americans know a little bit more about the long term we can be inspired by that dave you're you're like what 74 years old now yeah and uh, 10 years ago, you, you paddled down the, the river when you were uh, 64. Is it different now for you physically? Uh, what, what was it like? I mean, you wrote a letter to the river. I remember, Dear Miss, my sore hands, aching back, stiff knees, flagging frame, and often struggling spirit all remind me of my limits, my age, and my mortality. Right. 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 So you're now, you're, you're getting older. Ten years older. You're, right? And you're still kayaking. And, and
1: I felt it. But, you know, we all make adjustments. And mm-hmm. um, we didn't travel as far when we were on the river on right. this journey. Yeah. And we didn't have a goal of getting to a certain place. Okay. Our goal was to just savor yeah. our experience. Because sometimes yeah. your your goal shapes your adventure and your experience. And I think what we learned was just be here. And savor and enjoy.
0: But if, if I sit in my car for two hours, I feel creaky when I get out. You're crouched into a kayak for, for three hours. What's it What's it like when you take your 73-year-old bag of bones out of that thing?
1: Well, it, it hurts here and there, <laughs> absolutely. But but i found, you know, it's a use it or lose it kind yeah, of proposition so true. with that's our so, bodies. Yeah, yeah. But I, I want to live as long and as fully as I can.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Ellingson. Now, Dave, you're a Lutheran pastor. In your book, you, you uh, quoted Job, the book of Job mm-hmm. from the Bible. Speak to the earth and it will teach you. And that's kind of what you're doing when you're out in your kayak.
1: Well, yeah. You know, the, the natural world is the first book. Native peoples talk about the first book. And I think that the natural world is perhaps our best teacher. I call it the classroom, but I also call it the cathedral.
0: Oh, and there you are, where you're aware on the Mississippi, you got... Every drop of rain between the Rockies and the Allegheny Mountains eventually ends up in that third longest river in the world and then eventually into the Gulf of Mexico. And you could just use a metaphor for that.
1: Yeah. Often the the Mississippi is called the backbone Mm -hmm. of our country because you think of all the places that are connected. Mm -hmm. I like to think since I'm a musician, I know you are too, of the music that came up the Mississippi River of blues and jazz and how it came to those various yes, cities and yes. the cultural life. The Mississippi, I think, is the heartbeat of our country in many ways. And
0: that's nothing new, as, as you learn when you see how the, the, the Native American tribes there had that tight relationship with the river. And the stewardship that they have for the father of waters and for Mother Earth, we can be inspired by today. Nothing old-fashioned about that wisdom.
1: No, no. It's interesting when I was talking with a couple of these Native American elders, and I'm producing a film about this right now. Uh, and this uh, Ojibwe uh, elder and I were talking, and I said, I love your creation story where, you know, the, the wind blew and the turtle came. And there's all these wonderful animals. And it's, it's in some ways a much better story, I think. Then the Hebrew creation story, on day one, this happened, on day two. They're both great stories, but they all have the same conclusion. We have been given the earth to care for and to tend. And we can learn from native peoples. We can learn from the scriptures. We can learn from lots of traditions.
0: In your book, you, you have a quote attributed to Chief Dan George. Can you read that quote?
1: Sure. The time will soon be here when my grandchild will long for the cry of the loon, the flash of a salmon the whisper of spruce needles, or the screech of an eagle. But he will not make friends with any of these creatures. And when his heart aches with longing, he will curse me. Have I done all I can to keep the air fresh? Have I cared enough about the water? Have I left the eagle to soar in freedom? Have I done everything I could to earn my grandchild's fondness?
0: Mm, That is beautiful. Dave... Ellingson, thanks for your ministry, Paddle Pilgrim. And I would bid you the same thing you bid us with the last two words of your book, Paddle Boldly. Amen. German comedian Hoppe Kirkling heard how a really long hike across Spain had helped countless people since the Middle Ages to reinvigorate themselves. Would it work for him? He tells us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hans-Peter Wilhelm Kirkling, Hoppe for short, has been making Germans laugh for almost 40 years now. He's a popular TV presenter, best known for his satirical characters, including an aging Schlager singer, an observant preschooler, and especially as an overly familiar journalist, Horst Schlammer, who even ran a mock campaign for chancellor back in 2009 on the slogan, Yes, we can." That's also when Hoppe joined us on Travel with Rick Steves when the English translation of his book, I'm Off Then, came out. A few years earlier, overworked and overweight, some health issues caused Hoppe to take time out from spoofing German society. A book about the Camino de Santiago made it sound like just the ticket. When Hoppe was with us, I asked him to start at the end by quoting what he had concluded after more than a month on the trail.
2: The Creator tosses us into the air and then, to our happy amazement, catches us again at just the right moment. It is like the spirited game parents play with their children. The message is, have faith in the one who's tossing you because he loves you and will quite unexpectedly be the one to catch you too. And when I think back on all that has happened along the way, I realize that God kept tossing me into the air and catching me again. We encountered each other every single day.
0: I understand you're quite a edgy crass comedian on TV, and you finish a book with something so spiritual and, and so deep, this journey that people are making is is quite a powerful experience. Tell us, Hapé, how many days, how many kilometers, uh, what was the, the, the basic parameters of your, uh, of your journey?
2: Well, it took me about uh, four weeks, four and a half weeks for the 500 miles. And to tell you the truth, Rick, I didn't walk all the way. I once took a bus, I once hiked, but let's say the last 330 miles of the way, I really kept on going just with my backpack. And I did it because I needed to recover from a gallbladder movement, which I had before. And I thought it would be a good idea not to go on a normal vacation uh, and just uh, reflect about my life and what I had done until that very point. And so I decided to go on the Camino de Santiago,
0: which is the old pilgrim's uh, route in Europe. Now, you went alone. Talk about being alone in the the vastness of northwest Spain.
2: Well, at the very beginning, that was very hard because I didn't think that the biggest obstacle I would come across on the street would be me. You have to deal a lot with yourself. And it took me some time, at least two weeks, to get along with myself and and
0: feel at ease. In fact, you mentioned in your book, Hoppy, that each day was sort of structured like the entire pilgrimage itself. What did you mean by that?
2: It felt as if I didn't do just one pilgrimage, but a thousand pilgrimages in, in in six weeks, because every day kind of had the same structure. You have to get up and, and struggle, find your pace, find your rhythm. Then you're on the way. Then you get tired. Even though every day is different from the other one, there is a certain pattern that repeats itself every day. And I believe that these patterns
0: can also be found in our very lives. Now, in your book, you made a, a point to have an insight of the day every day. To tell you the truth, Rick, I I didn't
2: think about it when I was writing my diary on the trip because I simply uh, kept the diary for one reason, because my guide told me to do so. It was written that it might be uh, quite boring also and you might feel lonely. So the only communication I had was uh, with my diary. So this is why I kept the diary. And when I was rewriting it before it was published, I kind of realized that there was an essence of the day every day. So Hmm. I tried to figure out what was the essence. And in fact, there was a lesson learned every day.
0: Hoppe, you mentioned you cheated. I mean, a lot of people are purists about this. You know, they've got to walk the whole way and they stay in these very rustic huts along the way. You were staying in nice hotels and and catching a train here and there. Did that take away from the validity of the experience for you? I don't think so. Um, I do know
2: that... Um, Orthodox pilgrims might think that the cheating is not okay, but you have to do the last 90 miles to have done the pilgrimage. So I think it's okay. And as I was quite exhausted when I started the Camino, and I'm overweight, I was then and I'm still now, so it took me some effort to get myself on the way. So I thought after six hours or eight hours of heavy walking, I wouldn't have to sleep in these sleeping rooms with 25 people and one shower and one toilet. So I decided to sleep in a bed and breakfast and encounter the other pilgrims during the day during my pilgrimage. That was my way of doing it. And as I believe that everyone should be, well, his own individual. So that was my way of being individual.
0: Well, that makes sense. You've sort of proven that you don't need to be a great hiker to do this trip, apparently. To tell you the truth, I was quite astonished that you
2: don't have to be that well-trained to do it. The only thing that counted for me was uh, kind of um, your spirit towards the thing. And, mm-hmm. and as this spirit grew by doing the walking, I, I realized that it's more important to be in the right mood to just face the walk.
0: Now, you know, that spirit is really impressive. I was there a couple of months ago. I was touring. I wasn't doing the Camino. But I would cross these pilgrims. And anybody with a backpack, I would say, I bet they're a pilgrim, and I'd look behind them and they'd have one of those uh, scallop shells of St. James jangling yeah. on their back. What was your gear? Did you have the traditional staff and shell and all that?
2: Well, of course I did have the shell and I had the backpack and realized after a couple of days that I had brought too many things with me. You have to change your clothes every day and that's it. So you need uh, two shirts maybe and and that's it. And I brought too many things with me. So what I did, I threw away a couple of things to Uh, make my backpack less heavy. So when you go there, bring just the essentials and that's it.
0: Part of the whole experience is proving that you don't need all the material comforts, I suppose.
2: Absolutely. And it's also kind of uh, a feeling of, of freedom if there is only the essentials and all the rest lacks because it gives you a feeling of great, well, self-confidence and, and you feel at ease
0: with just the essentials. I'm speaking with Happe Kirkling, author of I'm Off Then, Losing and Finding Myself on the Camino de Santiago. It's been a huge hit in Germany and now it's available in English for travelers in the United States. I imagine Chaucer did a, a pilgrimage similar to what you did back in the Middle Ages and he met a whole series of people fascinating enough to write his Canterbury Tales. Did you meet interesting people along the way that sort of carbonated the experience?
2: Well, what makes the way so interesting is that it's not a normal walk, so you won't encounter normal tourists but pilgrims, and they're searching for something. And it doesn't matter whether they are atheists, because there are also uh, pilgrims not believing in God, Buddhists, Catholics, or whatever. Everyone is searching for something. So when you meet these people in the loneliness of the scenery, you can immediately talk to them in depth and that is really what it makes so special. And so every day you have weird encounters, nice encounters, and, and you learn lessons you might have never have heard of before. And that was, to me, the most amazing and beautiful thing on the way.
0: So there was an ambience or an atmosphere where people talked about meaningful things because everybody was uh, trying to better understand their lives and their relationship uh, with their creator. Is that the deal?
2: I think so, because sometimes you walk across the streets and you may think about the essential things of life, what is going to happen, what is going to happen when I die, but you wouldn't dare to talk to strange people about it if you're in the shopping mall. But Hmm. if you're on the Camino de Santiago, you just can stop a person and say, you know what I'm busy with at the very moment, and they would
0: listen to you and maybe also deliver a, a good answer. Wow. So you write in your book, This is a Chance to Contemplate Life's Big Questions, Everybody's different. You're you're quite an interesting person. You're a gay comedian, lapsed Catholic, and you're German.
2: Did you? <laughs> That's a combination. Isn't that a That's combination? That's a funny
0: combination.
2: I've never thought about it, but now hearing you say it, it's very funny. <laughs> I'm not a communist, though. <laughs> no, of course not.
0: But, I mean, the point is we all have big questions in our lives, and we can't talk about them at the mall. Yeah. You had a one-month opportunity to be free with other people who were free to explore the meaning of life.
2: Yes, I felt it was quite a luxurious experience. My expectations were very high. I kind of expected to, at the end, find myself completely illuminated and my life changed totally. Of course, this did not happen, but what happens is Tiny little things. You find yourself at a certain point in a wheat field and and you figure out you have to cry. And at the same time, you're laughing about you don't know what. And you're walking through a process of your own emotions, a cathesis of your own emotions. And that's a a very sublime experience and process. And it takes some time before it, it starts. You know, I've been
0: wondering when people struggle to know God, whether it's in a spiritual sense or an organized religious sense, if first you don't need to know yourself, did you think about that much on your pilgrimage?
2: At the very beginning, as I told you, I had very high expectations, and I thought, well, I want to find God, but didn't realize that the biggest obstacle between me and God was myself. So um, I kind of felt that it was necessary to think about my own Let's call it the dark sides or the, the shadows or things I wouldn't like to think. Well, you know, everybody wants to be the nice guy. You wouldn't call yourself a bad person, but indeed the truth is everyone has both of it in himself and herself. So I thought it was necessary to ponder about it, and I did. I didn't like the process, though, but it was necessary.
0: Does God like your sense of humor? I hope he does.
2: I think he has got, or he, she, it, however you may call him her or it, does have a sense of humor.
0: Yeah, I believe so. Hoppe Kirkling's diary of his six-week-long hike of self-discovery along the way of St. James' Pilgrim Trail in Spain sold millions of copies in Germany, and it was even made into a movie in 2015. In English, Hoppe's book is called I'm Off Then, losing and finding myself on the Camino de Santiago. He's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview from our archives. By the way, the numbers of Camino pilgrims from Europe shot up 20% after Hoppe's book came out, and the amount of hikers on the route has started a rebound in the last year after COVID lockdowns and border closures have loosened up. We've got Corrine on the phone in Manchester, Washington. Corrine, do you have a comment or a question for Hoppe?
4: I don't have a question. I just wanted to say that I started this trip just as an adventure experience and I found that what came out for me was that I'm very goal-oriented and I realized after the first few days that there I am trying to set miles and time and so I realized that I needed to uh, just enjoy And so it took me probably close to two weeks to get into the mode where I could just enjoy the experience.
0: Huh? Now, Hoppe, did it take you a while to settle into that sort of proper mindset?
2: Absolutely. Pretty much like uh, Karina, it took me two weeks to get into my mood of uh, the Camino. And you have to keep on going the first two weeks because you're always tempted to give up because you don't feel well.
4: I never had that sense of wanting to give up. For me, it was like, what would it be like every morning to get up and just start walking without Mm -hmm. knowing what your destination was, without knowing the terrain, just to have that unknown experience every day, and I found it just to be fabulous.
0: Now, has that stayed with you, Corrine? Has it been given you sort of a souvenir that keeps on uh, uh, giving?
4: You can never get rid of that memory of having that energy flow as you walk the Camino. It's as if you're walking with 2,000 years of energy. And yes, Mm -hmm. that memory stays with me and the daily experience of enjoying every moment. It's a whole different way of seeing your life.
1: What a radical
0: way to spend a month on vacation. This is very inspirational. Thank you, Corrine. You're welcome. Ellie is on the phone in Seattle, Washington. Ellie, you just did the Camino recently. Tell us about your experience.
4: Oh,
5: uh, we went uh, with no expectations at all. We didn't go for spiritual reasons. We went for the adventure. As we kept going along and along with it, uh, I think the spiritual aspect of it came in quite clear. Uh, We enjoyed it. It took us 32 days. Um, And by the way, we're seniors. My husband's 70. And uh, I just want to say anyone can go. It, It doesn't matter what your age is. You know, it was just A wonderful experience. I I recommend it for everyone. There is hardly a day that goes by that we don't talk about it, we don't reflect on it. And bore everyone to death with our (laughs) experience (laughs) of it. Uh, The experience of going into Santiago, the cathedral, it was wonderful. The people we met, the average age I would say is 20 to 30 years old. Uh, We were definitely the oldest ones on the trail. Um, People got lost. People had hard times. People quit. It was amazing how many young people just walked away from it. And like Karina says, we didn't even think of giving up. I would have crawled if I would have had to get in to Santiago. It was wonderful.
0: Did you have some kind of a guidebook? I noticed there were guidebooks printed for you. Yeah, we
5: did. Actually, it came from England, and it had maps. It was small. We were able to... uh, Take it in our packs, which by the way, your packs have to be down to about 10 pounds. And we started sending things home. I gave my sleeping bag away. I mean, you know, you just every day that pack goes on your back. So you're very conscious of what is in it. So we kind of try to stuck to the day schedule, which by the way, was 15 to 20 miles a day. That's what we averaged. Uh, mm. We got up very early in the morning and away we went. But this book we had, was, uh, it was great. It you know, told about the little villages that we were going into, about the accommodations. Food was wonderful. People were wonderful. The wine was wonderful. <laughs> All right. Hey,
0: Ellie, unlike, <laughs> a, unlike <laughs> a pilgrimage, we've got a time schedule here, so yeah. we've got to run along. Okay. Thank you a lot. <laughs> uh, <I'm fine> <laughs> okay. Bye. Hans-Peter Wilhelm Kerkling has been making Germans laugh for almost 40 years now. Poppy has written a book called I'm Off Then, A movie about Hape's childhood was released in 2018. And in the last year, Hape released an album of personal songs called Mal unter uns. By the way, our conversation was recorded before the pandemic. I want to read an email from Sarah in Boulder, Colorado. Sarah did the Camino with a friend. She said, it only gets better as I look back on it, reading my journal and realizing what I'd learned. At mass in the Cathedral in Santiago, so many people we'd seen throughout the way appeared once again. I discovered that meeting people who were each so different from all over the world was the best part of the trip. Living simply with few possessions is enlightening. We all want to believe we can keep ourselves safe by surrounding ourselves with all the stuff we need. But when we let that go, we learn that our relationships are the most important. Sarah recommends the commando to anyone open to the experience of not knowing exactly where the road will lead, but nevertheless willing to follow it wholeheartedly. Hape, does that resonate with your experience?
2: Oh, absolutely. What you really learn is how to get rid of things that bother you and and just throw them away simply, might it be a thought or things in your backpack. And what you learn as well is that you have to find your own pace. And if you want to walk with someone, you have to kind of find out his or her rhythm. And that's a good lesson for life, Mm. so that you should respect your own rhythm. And of course, you must respect the pace and rhythm of another person. And that was, for me, one of the best lessons I learned.
0: Now, you write in your book, Hoppy, that uh, the real Camino starts after you've finished the Camino de Santiago. Exactly what did you mean by that, then?
2: Well, what I meant by it is that by the walking, you kind of restructure your life and you take the pattern of the Camino as your own life pattern, the way you have structured Every day's walk afterwards, you can structure your own life, and if it's quite difficult to to explain because it's a spiritual pattern which I try to take over, and sometimes you manage better, sometimes you don't, but um, it keeps you going, and it's something that'll never leave you again. That's what I've experienced.
0: So the Camino experience, several years later, is is still vivid in your life. Maybe people who have been on a peak of a mountain.
2: And they might always remember the view they had from there. So this is kind of what you can recall in your mind when you think of the Camino and all the good
0: emotions and feelings come back to you. Hoppe Kirkling, author of I'm Off Then, Losing and Finding Myself on the Camino de Santiago. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. We have links to Hoppe Kirkling's website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. At its high desert altitude, the natural light in New Mexico has a way of amplifying the landscape in surprising ways. Up next, Christina Nielsen takes us to some of her favorite sacred places in New Mexico. Her number is 877 333 7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. She's not always been sure of where she's going, but that's been the point of her own personal pilgrimage. For years now, Christina Nielsen has enjoyed the freedom of defying other people's expectations by making her way in an RV with her faithful dog and cat to explore the wilderness trails and backroads of the American West. Before settling in on her own land in the high desert a ways out of Tucson, Christina made Taos in New Mexico her base for exploring that state's remarkable natural settings. She ventured from petroglyphs to tribal communities to shrines and sanctuaries from a variety of spiritual traditions. She also encountered places where scientists are observing the mysteries of deep space and where others developed the nuclear bomb. Christina photographed and wrote up 88 such destinations in her book, New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Christina, thanks for being with us today on Travel with Rick Steves.
3: Thank you. My pleasure, Rick. New
0: Mexico really is a unique place in that regard, isn't it? What what is it about New Mexico?
3: I think the thing that strikes me most strongly is you know New Mexico is a is an interesting place because its history came from the south as opposed to much of the United States where the history came from the east. You know, we have the the Spanish and the Mexican forces coming up into New Mexico and pretty much making contact with the Native Americans, and that was sort of the genesis of this book. When I started to do it, I found that the sanctuary part of this book was primarily, of course, Hispanic and Spanish. The sacred places were the Native Americans, Hmm. and so you had those two forces coming together. And then the other part of the book, the retreats, was not surprisingly... The Anglos. The Anglo, the white people that came in as a third wave.
0: So, Christina, I think you nailed it there. Uh, When we think about a lot of the United States, it's the westward movement. And then when we think about New Mexico, we're thinking about spillover from Spanish culture moving up from Spain and how that overlays with the indigenous cultures, would that contribute to the fact that there's so much that has a sort of a sacred and a spiritual dimension for sightseeing in New Mexico?
3: Absolutely. One of the things that New Mexico demands is that you recognize this rich overlay of landscape in proximity to these different cultures. And that's what makes it so fascinating for me in terms of when you're crossing that landscape.
0: Now, you've got 88 places that you recommend in this one state in your guidebook. And in New Mexico, you can be all alone in a vast and, and immense desert. What, what is that like in New Mexico?
3: Oh, well, you know, when, when you are out there in, in the wide open spaces, I like to think as landscape is something that feeds the soul. It opens us up to our senses in ways that are very, very different from when we are in a more civilized place. And again in New Mexico you have these inner mixes you have the mix of the Spanish the Hispanic and the native american those rituals are placed upon the landscape and you cannot be in in one locale in New Mexico without being vibrantly aware of the other forces for instance let me let me give you an example if you go to three rivers petroglyphs it's a place that has 21,000 petroglyphs in this very very Um, nondescript place, and suddenly you walk up on this hill and you are surrounded by petroglyphs that are drawings that are made by chipping the stone as opposed to drawing on it.
0: Okay, and how old would those be?
3: These would be uh, thousands of years old. So you have 21,000 of those. Then you walk a little further down the road and you walk into a little chapel, again, that's nondescript. I just happened to find it. This is the way I did this book, sort of following my nose. And you walk into this chapel called Santo Nino de Atocho. So right there you have the Native American, and then suddenly you walk into this Hispanic chapel that is one of the most amazing little chapels I have been in anywhere in the world in terms of all of the ornamentation inside and it is devoted to San Onino de Atocha, which is a little saint of the unjustly imprisoned or those that are hit with divine illness.
0: So you're saying that there's what we've got is this uh, sort of a rich overlay of a previous culture and then another culture and putting their spiritual spots in the same place? You do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Nielsen and her books New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Diane's on the phone from New Mexico in Santa Fe. Diane, thanks for your call.
6: Hi. I've lived here in New Mexico quite a while, and I make it a point to go up to the various Pueblos. Our Pueblo Indians were unconquered, really, by the uh, Spanish when they came north from Mexico. And as a matter of fact, they threw the Mexicans out for about 90 years until they resettled the state. And when you go to the Pueblos, particularly for Christmas dances and things of that kind, you see that the Christianity that is being practiced in the little churches is really heavily influenced by the native culture. And I'm interested if you found uh, instances of how one culture has influenced another and changed the the expression of the sacred.
3: Well, absolutely there there had to be an integration, you know, eventually with the Pueblo Revolt of course, I think is what you're referring to in 1680 when the native Americans overthrew the Spanish that had been coming in and doing some pretty disastrous things to their culture. In the next 10 to 15 years the Spanish came back, but it was a it was a very different integration at that point and the Native Americans did allow Christianity onto their pueblos. What I observed that was most fascinating was the side-by-side approach. If you go to the Taos Pueblo on New Year's Eve, it's one of the most fascinating things you'll ever see. It starts with the Mass in their little, their little chapel, and then suddenly they come outside and they're carrying the Virgin. There are Native Americans with guns in the beginning. This happens at sundown. There's a procession that goes through the Pueblo and suddenly you begin to get this Armageddon feeling. The sun is going down, the rifles are going off to protect the Virgin. They have lit huge bonfires all around the Pueblo which are smoking and firing. They're volcanic. Some of these are over two stories high. and you are immersed in this scene that is overpowering. And that, to me, is is one of the best metaphors for what you're talking about, this integration.
6: I'm so glad you mentioned this, because it is the most remarkable thing, and it's so original and authentic. I, I mean, it's just astounding. You come out of that church, and you're confronted with a two-story-high bonfire, mm-hmm. and these rifles that are being fired are more than 100 years old. It's just a remarkable ceremony, and it is the combination of both cultures that makes New Mexico such a special place, I think. Diane, yes.
0: thanks for your call. You're welcome. Christina, when we're talking about the places to see in New Mexico, you mentioned so vividly walking through deep and, and rocky canyons and wading on broad and narrow waters. Take us there just uh, vividly, if you could, uh, so we could be inspired to go there ourselves.
3: Well, you know, one one of the most amazing places that I have been to is called the Bosque del Apache, the woods of the Apache. It is on, of course, the Rio Grande River, and it is a place where hundreds of thousands of migrating birds gather every winter. There are sandhill cranes, which are very prehistoric. There are over 100,000 snow geese. I put this in the book as a a sacred event, a sacred place, because if you are there in the wintertime, There is a mass ascension of these birds twice a day. They come together in the evenings, and then they ascend in the morning. And it is, you know, it takes you to a different place.
0: Also, Christina, in your book you talk about spend time in solitary spiritual journey. And you have even have a solitude rating on the <laughs> 88 sites, which I thought was fascinating because I've, I <laughs> I've rated a lot of hotels and restaurants, but I've never thought about giving them a solitude rating. <laughs> what is it about solitude that uh, factors into your spiritual journeys in New Mexico?
3: One of the things is that I think that quiet and darkness are two endangered species that no one talks about. And another thing I talk a lot about in this book is, is darkness as well. But, you know, that, that silent place where we can sit with just the sounds of nature and let that soul begin to work on us, where we can hear those voices that we can't hear amidst all the chatter of our daily life.
0: She's been exploring the backroads of the American West for 18 years and counting. Christina Nielsen is our guest, looking at sacred places in New Mexico. She's written memoirs about her life on the road from Alaska to the tip of Baja, including Wild Road Home, Memoirs of an Adventuress. Lately, Christina's parked her RV in the desert outside Tucson, where she often posts thoughts and photos on Facebook. Her website is ChristinaNielsen.com, spelled N-E-A-L-S-O-N. Christina, New Mexico has both a rich pre-colonial history and also a colonial heritage. Talk about the colonial heritage from a sightseeing and a traveler's point of view in New Mexico.
3: When you are traveling through northern New Mexico, especially, but all over New Mexico, but in the heart of New Mexico, every few miles that you come to, you come to beautiful sanctuaries, most of them adobe, red, soft curves, these gorgeous buildings that invite you in. Some of them, the walls are so thick, they're several feet thick, because they were at one time forts when people were settling and there was problems with the Native Americans. These sanctuaries, if you will, you walk into them and there's a quietness because of the thickness of the walls, the adobe. They bring you in and they sit you down in this quiet, soft space. They are every few miles. You could travel throughout New Mexico and just do that and not have anything else on your schedule, and fell up many, many weeks.
0: So you've got the, the Catholic, uh, Mexican, colonial sort of heritage, and then you have the pre-Christian, Native American heritage, all mixing it up. Let's yes. talk just for a minute about the early Christian heritage. What are the dates? When do the, the first conquistadors come in? When, when do these first Christian missions come in?
3: You're talking about the 1600s? For the most part, some of them were earlier than that, but uh, those early trade routes started to happen in the 1600s.
0: So I understand from your book, the oldest shrine to Mary in the United States is right there in Santa Fe.
3: Yes, the major trade route from Mexico City came up to Santa Fe, and you have these churches there that have actually been filled with accoutrements and carvings that originated in Spain.
0: How did the Native American culture mix it up with this Catholicism coming in from Mexico? Was it a, a comfortable fit? Was it a brutal fit? Uh, what, what's your take on that today from what you'd look at with a, as a sightseer?
3: It was a brutal fit. It was a case of the Spanish coming in through Mexico and overlaying their religion on the Natives, which in and of itself was one level, but then you had the level of them taking away the things that were sacred to the natives, like the drum, like the kivas.
0: Now, what is a kiva? You you talked about a kiva in the book. Describe that to our listeners, please.
3: A kiva is a, is a round, large hole, if you will, in the earth that is various sizes, but it's a circle. It can be 20 feet across, it can be 50 feet across. If you go to Chaco Canyon, you will find kivas there that are just humongous. It is thought that the kivas were the ceremonial places of the Native Americans and that that's where they would go into. Kivas represented they were in the earth, dug out, said to represent the womb of the earth.
0: So as travelers today, we can actually find some of these kivas, and if so, do they have any of their uh, mysticism intact?
3: They do, especially the ones at Chaco Canyon. Chaco Canyon has hundreds of kivas, and that's why they think in the latest interpretations of Chaco, that it was a ceremonial center that peoples came to from hundreds and hundreds of miles, all the way from down to Mexico, all over the southwest, to do ceremony at Chaco. Because they haven't found very many signs of daily life there. No dumping grounds that would normally Hmm. be in a place like that. But what they have found is many, many kivas and astrological maps and petroglyphs that point to the heavens.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Christina Nielsen, and she's written a book called New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Barbara's on the line from Texas. Barbara, thanks for your call.
7: Oh, Thank you. You're welcome. I'm just in love with New Mexico myself. I've I've been there lots and lots of times. I have a place in Riodosa. Nice just enjoy everything about the state and exploring all the unbelievable areas there.
0: So, Barbara, we, you know, I've been talking with Christina here, and it seems like you can just drive down the road in any which way and come upon these places that are centuries old and have been very important to people long ago and still have a, a powerful feeling today. What's your experience with that?
7: I have have explored quite a number of those places, and the petroglyphs are just Amazing to see. I, I didn't really know that much about the history of New Mexico, but just in exploring with my family and asking questions and learning about these things, it's it's really wonderful seeing these carvings in stone that these people so many years ago had made. It was their, I think it was probably their way of communicating. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm a novice at this kind of thing. I'm
3: just fascinated.
0: But they by leave it. kind of mysterious messages just to us centuries later. And Christina, what what can we learn from a petroglyph?
3: One of the great things about the petroglyphs, and Barbara, you'll probably agree with this. It's it's the mystery that's behind them. There are theories about what the petroglyphs are about, but no one really knows. And that, to me, is the heart of what is special about New Mexico. There are so many mysteries everywhere you turn.
0: Christina, something else that adds to the mix in a very poignant way, I would think, is the fact that there's still a strong, living Native American presence. And they may be Christian, but they would have lots of pre-Christian and and their own cultural and religious uh, dimensions to their way of living. How does that add to the mix for a traveler?
3: Oh, that that mix is incredibly strong. Up and down the Rio Grande are pueblos, and every one of the tribal communities has their dances that resonate from the season. Uh, The public is invited to go to many of those dances. You can go and you can watch, and it takes you into another world. The outfits people wear, the sound of the drum, the women standing there with their hand-woven blankets in their princess boots, their white boots, just for ceremony.
0: Barbara, did you ever stumble upon a ceremony at a Pueblo?
7: Well, not, not exactly at a Pueblo, but I have been to powwows in like in Albuquerque and places that were just fascinating to see because the current Native Americans dress in the style that their historical relatives had. And that is fascinating, the music.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Christina, yeah. are, these, are these crass uh, Kodak moment kind of touristic things? Or are they actual intimate for real gatherings that tourists are welcome to sit quietly and observe?
3: I wouldn't call powwows intimate, but they are dance competitions is what they are. So the different tribes come together and they share their dances and they do this for several days.
0: Barbara, thanks for your call, by the way. That's, it's well, great to welcome. get your take I'm on this. I'm enjoying listening. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Barbara.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Christina Nielsen. Her book is New Mexico's Sanctuaries, Retreats, and Sacred Places. Now, you said this book is about for all those who seek. What are they seeking?
3: I think they're seeking a sense of self. One of the things that we do not get a chance to do is to find out who we are outside of our roles, whether that role as mother or father or our professional role, one of the things that travel does is it takes us beyond ourselves to that place where we can find out who we are outside of those roles.
0: Christina Nielsen, that is a noble crusade in our fast and ever faster world here in the United States of America. Thanks so much, and uh, best wishes with your um, sharing the importance of finding solitude and sanctuary, specifically in New Mexico.
3: Thank you.
2: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazma Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York and KNAU in Flagstaff, Arizona, for their help this
0: week. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.